2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner, and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. You know, for couples
2: that have been clients, I, I was just having some some considerations of some of our clients that are couples, and some of our clients that that were couples that are now you know one of them has passed away, and 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 the wife is a widow or the husband is a widower and for many of our 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 folks that have been uh couples for decades um it's because of the love that they had and the maybe in some cases compromise that they 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 made in their their married life that they stayed together and in and now in retirement or pre-retirement they're seeing the 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 fruit of their their love, because what they've accumulated is now supporting them in retirement, I was, wondering that, if that that was that oh, sense?
3: yeah, I was wondering if that was where you're going because so much of the conversation is um in the office, wrapped around how we feel about each other. And in regard to that, now we get to spend time together because right. we made it.
1: Do You remember that couple we met with this past week? It was such an enjoyable time because uh, here they have reached that stage. They're getting ready to retire. He's worked, I think, over 40 years in the same job and everything. And uh, they've been together. And much of our time, my speaking with them in the office was exactly that. Yes, you've made sacrifices through the years, but now you need to treat yourself. You need the two of you need to enjoy these retirement years that you diligently accumulated for, for, with all these years that you were laboring together. Your marriage is still together. You haven't gone through divorce. You've raised the kid. The kids are pay, are out and of the. And that's
2: house. not to that's, say that there weren't a f- few bumps in the road, but that's
3: life. Right, Debs? That is, that, that is, is life. that is. If you want to call us during the week to set up an appointment for yourself, give me a call at 919-872-7000, and we will get started. We'll make a list of the questions that are on your mind. There was an article this week uh, about kids, speaking of kids, Linda, that uh, ready or not, your kids own the money, and it was speaking to... Uh, The point that many parents have set up custodial accounts, and at a set age, usually 18 or 21, I think it's 21 in North Carolina, but young adults get control.
1: This actually was one of the questions that the couple I met with this past week, because a lot of times grandparents like to set up accounts for their grandchildren. And so right away, the question comes into, into focus when we're doing financial planning, what kind of account? Uh, What kind of account can we use? You know, parents and grandparents have a lot to think about as their children approach adulthood. Will they go to college? Will they graduate? But there's one other thing. How are they going to handle these UGMA or UTMA accounts?
3: And a UGMA, that's a Uniform Gift to Minors account or Uniform Transfer to Minor account. Uh, Under terms of a state's Uniform Gift to Minors Act or Uniform Transfer to Minors Act, a custodian controls these accounts while the child is a minor.
1: But the account, the account itself is considered an irrevocable gift to that child who should get control of all the cash and the investments in that account once he or she reaches a certain age, if it's a UGMA account, it's age 18. That's uniform gift to minors account. If it's a UTMA account, that's a uniform transfer to minors account. That's age 21. And depending on the state, but the child receives it as an irrevocable gift.
2: So, Doug, um, once the, the child the, uh, the child does get, uh, receive it as an irrevocable irre- uh, gift and... Once the child gains control of the money, though he or she may have an entirely different idea of how he should spend it or even just how it should be
1: invested. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, many a time, these accounts have grown to be $100,000, $200,000 or more. And did you really expect that 18-year-old or that 21-year-old to use that you know, that $100,000, 200000 for college when maybe they think they would like to take a trip to Europe or maybe they're going to be the next Beatles band and
3: so <laughs> forth. <laughs>
1: I mean, you know, these things happen. And so the question comes up, and it did come up last week, what's the best way to do it? And not give that huge temptation to the child.
3: If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000. Or go to our website, dougandlinda.com. That's dougandlinda.com.
1: Well, we of course, we do have UGMA accounts. That's one way. But that has the problem. And then the UTMA accounts, that moves the problem a couple years down the road. Still too young, in my opinion. And many clients don't really don't want to do it that way. There's another way to do it. How's that? Up. Well, that's what we did with them. We decided, all right. Why don't we go ahead and set up the account for the grandkids, but keep it in the name of the grandparents?
3: I see. So it's earmarked for education costs, but but we haven't lost control. That's
1: right. It's not an irrevocable gift. Legally, it's in the name of the grandparents. But now there was another objective that the grandparents, clients who came to see us, wanted to handle. And that was, is there a way that the parents could be reminded on a regular basis to contribute to their children's educational account, even though it was owned by the grandparents. And yes, we did. We set it up to where they can do an automatic, we call it a pay yourself first, but an automatic pay yourself first of $100 a month or $200 a
2: month
1: into their children's account, which is owned by the grandparents. And that solves the whole problem. If times change and it gets to be a huge amount and the grandchildren don't, uh, look like they are destined to use it the proper way, or the way that they hoped don't need it, was. it to
3: go. Don't need it to, to. Let's let's say there's the other side. They get a huge scholarship. Everything's exactly. paid for, and it, it instead has been uh, used wisely for the family in other ways. Whether it's the parents or the uh, grandparents, keep it for retirement needs.
1: So that was it. That was the issue, and I think uh, it doesn't go away. We find more and more of our clients that are interested in setting up accounts for their grandchildren to go ahead and take care of college needs. You're
2: listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: And don't forget to go to our website, DougAndLinda.com, DougAndLinda.com. You can see a video of us and you can hear radio clips. Find out more about how we treat clients in our office. And we also give away a free copy of the book, Middle Class Millionaire, to those who come to the office for appointments as the couple last week received their free copy and we 're going to take a caller right now brian what 's your money matter this evening this is doug lewis
4: uh, doug i 'm twenty seven and i 've got an income of ninety four thousand dollars a year and i've got i 'm getting mixed uh, comments on how I should invest my money uh, I want to it 's just a general question that i have i 'm wanting to build my portfolio as quick as possible naturally like everybody. Should I be more risk of a risk risk taker at my age or should I try to be very conservative with my money at this point.
1: It's got nothing to do with your age because of your income and your age. It's got more to do with the type of income, by the way, Brian. What what kind of work do you do?
4: I'm a manufacturer's rep. I you know, I get a 1099. It's straight commission.
1: All right, so you're on straight commission. Yes, sir. Okay. Then you need to be more conservative than a typical guy, let's say, who's 45 years old, making 94000 working for IBM. Right. I mean, because you, you're in a feast or famine situation. That's very true. Okay, are you married or single? I'm married. You married any children? I have three children. Oh, okay. Even tougher. <laughs> yeah, right. that's right. Okay, then what you need to do is you need to change hats. All day long, your life is in a very aggressive, fast-paced talk. That's very true. All right, that's the way a salesman makes his living. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you've got to prepare for your wife and your children, and you need to think in terms of a conservative investor. And with a balanced portfolio, you should start... In your case, you should have six months living expenses. What are your living expenses right now? Do you have any idea?
4: Uh, yes, I do. It, it takes about $30,000 a year for me to pay my mortgage bill, so on and so forth. All right, so... And that, that's not business expenses. That's living expenses. Right.
1: Okay. So we're talking about 2500 a month, so six times 25 means you ought to have about $15,000 first of all set in a an emergency fund. Right. Now, where should you put that emergency fund? You could be dumb and put it in a savings account. Mm-hmm. Okay? You could be a little smarter and you could put it in a credit union or in a bank in a bank money market account getting right. about a half a percent more. You could get a little smarter and go to a money market account at a credit union mm-hmm. or you could go into the money market accounts at the mutual fund family groups. Right. And that's where you should keep it. You should keep about fifteen thousand in one of the larger money market, uh, one of the larger mutual fund families that have unlimited check writing and have no commissions or charges to you for that account. I see. Once you've got that set up, then you should go into your liquid investments. Mm-hmm. There you should have mutual funds. Okay. I, I don't. By the way, do you have any other investments at all?
4: Uh, at this point, I don't. I mean, my income has jumped dramatically, so I'm just now in a position to where I really need to to take a look at, at, at where I need to put my money.
3: If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
4: What do you have to start with? How much do you have? Well, at this point, I've put a majority of my money into my house. I mean, it's an equity... Situation: I have about forty thousand dollars equity in my home.
1: What'd you do that for?
4: Oh, I just I built one and rolled it into another one. Uh, felt that would be the safest thing for me to do at this point, uh, without having any professional guidance. That that's
1: okay. Well, that means you're paying high taxes.
4: Uh, well, it's in Johnson County. Yes, yeah, it is. No, no, no. I don't mean real estate. I mean income taxes.
1: Well, that's uh. Oh, you're going to this year. If your yeah, income just true. jumped this that's year. True. I
4: was going yeah. to say at this point it hasn't been bad, but it will be.
1: Yeah. But you want the maximum income tax deduction you can get. Mm-hmm. Of course, you got three kids and your wife and yourself. you got five right. exemptions. But I would want some more mortgage interest. But in any case, if you're telling, how much do you have to start your portfolio with?
4: Um, as far as liquid? Yeah. I have about $10,000.
1: Okay. Well, you can't do anything just yet. All you can do is start to build your emergency fund. Right. Okay. After you get your emergency fund built, one thing I would do, by the way, Brian, I would go ahead and analyze my living expenses closely and institute what we call a pay-yourself-first plan. Okay. In other words, take those living expenses. If you figure that you're living on 30,000 a year, mm-hmm. all right? Then run a tax analysis or contact me at my office during the week and I'll run a tax analysis for you and we can pull the taxes out and the living expenses and what's left over would be your monthly discretionary income. Correct. We divide that, or we take that monthly discretionary income and that should be going every month into a mutual fund portfolio. Mm-hmm. And I would go with a family of funds that allows free changing between funds so there are no commission charges once you've gone into the family. Right. Go right in one month at a time and go into a balanced fund. And then once you've got that fund up to about 15000 then move into a growth fund with the next fifteen, And I'd keep going up the triangle like that. Okay, Brian, thanks for calling. Thank you, sir. Okie doke Bye-bye. Bye-bye now.
2: You're listening to Money Matters
3: with the Lewises. Give us a call at 919-872-7000. We look forward to meeting with you. Well, there was an interesting article regarding
2: withdrawing money and cutting taxes. Did you see that, Doug?
1: Was that the article in the Wall Street Journal? Yes. Yes, Yeah. Investors can save a lot of money on taxes if they're putting money aside in 401k plans and IRAs but many investors who are in or in or near retirement also can end up paying less in taxes in the long run by carefully timing withdrawals from those saving vehicles a high balance in an IRA can actually be a, a curse as well as a blessing when it comes to taxes particularly for older investors.
3: They often must withdraw a minimum amount each year determined by their age and account balance.
1: So if frugal investors delay taking money out earlier to let their accounts grow, then those required minimum withdrawals, we call them RMDs, they can actually push the client into higher income tax brackets and increase the taxes owed to start taking it out of the IRA and rolling it over, account holders can now take it out of a tax-deferred account with no penalty. And there was an interesting set of numbers in that article because the client that they referenced had retired early to travel with his wife. He had $800,000 in an IRA as well as other savings. The article said that the planner recommended the man take out thirty to 40000 a year, paying income tax on it, No penalty, of course, but put it into a Roth IRA where gains and payouts aren't taxed. Now, recently, that very client turned 70, and he's going to move into a higher tax bracket when he starts taking his required minimum. But at the same time, he's built up a half million dollars in the Roth IRA.
2: Wow. Interesting. And, And that doesn't have
1: to come out. The Roth IRA doesn't have to come out. So it's much better to plan ahead, to have flexibility, better control of your taxes, very course,
2: interesting. It is
1: interesting. Of course, it's very tricky. Calculating whether the strategy is worthwhile, it, it it gets tricky there. Investors need to figure out which tax bracket they can end up in if they withdraw money from a tax-deferred account. But the difference can very, can very, very... Certainly
2: vary. be significant. Well, it can huh? be significant.
1: <laughs> it really can, Linda. So it's definitely worth it to not just go by the old-fashioned thought, I'll just leave it there. Because course, when you take it out, you may be thrown into a higher tax bracket.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. And isn't it true uh, with,
2: with uh, some of the clients that, that we've met with, And, you know, there are a lot of folks, maybe to you, some of our listeners, you have adequate income and maybe you're still working and you don't need this extra income. But Uncle Sam is saying, hey, it's time for you to start taking it out because as you take it out of your IRA, the government's getting taxes,
1: right? Right. That's right. Of course, we're seeing more and more clients right now who are telling us this is the year.
3: And I think that's the most important part is working with the certified financial planner right. allows right. you to take that 10 years or so ahead of time and say, well, I know what's ahead of me. How can I best plan? Can we do some scenarios and some what ifs? And and if I'm not needing that money to live off of, how do I uh, withdraw it? The best way, the most tax-efficient way, and uh, like you always say, Doug, if we have two pair, you uh, know, two pockets on one pair of pants, we can definitely take money from a tax-deferred account and have it invested into the personal side, and and we're not losing anything; we're gaining something.
1: All we're doing is moving from one pocket. To the other pocket, but we're still in the same pair of pants. Yeah. That's exactly mm. right.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
1: Now, you're reminding me also of some other well-known, but not necessarily truisms that are out there today. And one of the biggest ones Is running into a new uh, fallacy this is the study that typically said well the older you get the less stocks and the more More bonds
3: bonds. right right
1: you know conventional wisdom says just that people entering retirement should have a big portion of their savings maybe 40 to 60 percent invested in stocks to help their nest egg grow over time and then as they age all but the wealthiest should gradually reduce their stock exposure market declines. But there's been a new study that just came out that says exactly what I've been saying for a (laughs) long time. (laughs) But the study comes from a very reputable source.
3: Okay. The Journal of Financial Planning.
1: That's right. The Journal of Financial Planning is calling this traditional advice into question. The report now finds out that those who take the opposite approach, actually reducing stock exposure right after retirement and then gradually raising it More and more and more over time, these people are likely to make their money last longer. So, again, I am reminded, don't trust the truisms that are out there, the common things that you've heard, Mm -hmm. because you may be going down the very wrong path.
2: And that's why it is important, if you're out there listening, to work with a certified financial planner that can help you look at your situation from a comprehensive viewpoint One who is a registered investment advisory firm that is going to put your interests ahead of his own and has the expertise and the experience to, uh, you know, to produce analyses that will help you whether you're still working and accumulating or whether you're getting closer to retirement and you need to make some very Definite decisions, important decisions about your future income and your financial independence. So, call us at Lewis Financial Management. Leave us your name and number. We'll be happy to get back with you. Let's schedule an appointment to address your financial planning needs. Call us at LFM at 919 872 7000. That's 919 USA 7000.
1: Well, you are touching on a very delicate subject, Linda, because This really is uh, getting more and more press now, the matter of who is watching out for you. Money Talks News on MSN News had a very interesting discussion. The writer said several weeks ago during a regular face-to-face chat about my Roth IRA investment choices, I asked my financial advisor if he'd be willing to sign a fiduciary pledge. Article said, I'd read a lot about this fiduciary pledge and the fiduciary duty behind them. I knew just enough to be curious about my own advisor's willingness to sign. I even prepared for the part of the conversation by printing out a fairly standard fiduciary pledge and having it ready for him to review and sign. Well, what did it look like, Deborah?
3: Fiduciary pledge. I, the undersigned, and here he left it for the financial advisor's name, pledge to always put the best interest of this guy's, uh, the clients, first, no matter what. As such, I will disclose in writing the following material facts and any conflicts of interest, actual or perceived, that may arise in our business relationship. All commissions, fees, loads, expenses in advance. Client will pay as a result of my advice and recommendations. All commissions, commissions I receive as a result of my advice and recommendations. The maximum fee discount allowed by my firm. The largest fee discount I give to other customers. The fee discount client is receiving. Any recruitment bonuses or recruitment compensation I have or I will receive from my firm fees I paid to others for the referral of clients to me, fees I have or will receive for referring clients to any third parties, and any other financial conflicts of interest that could reasonably compromise the impartiality of my advice and recommendations.
1: And, of course, the financial (laughs) advisor is supposed to sign it. Well, you know what happened, according to the article. How did the advisor react when he read this pledge? His reaction was, according to the writer, very disappointing. He stammered through the response. He said he'd never heard of such a thing as a fiduciary pledge. He said he'd think about it. And a few days later, he called back to inform the writer that he would be unable to sign. So really, we have to come up to this question. Well, how important are fiduciary pledges? And what are the implications if your longtime financial advisor declines to sign one
3: this is deborah lewis our number at the office is 919-872-7000 919-872-7000 and of course in our
1: office every we always sign them we have had we have used fiduciary pledges for well over 25 years but many people don't know so it comes down to an important question
3: which is what is a fiduciary And if you're new to the topic of fiduciary pledges, a definition is in order. A fiduciary pledge is essentially a promise made in writing by brokers, financial advisors, or other types of money managers to follow a fiduciary standard of conduct. This sounds so straightforward and sensible that you may ask yourself,
2: well, aren't financial advisors and brokers required by law to do this anyway? The short answer, unfortunately, is no. As surreal as it may sound, some folks who are dispensing financial advice these days are simply salespeople with impressive-sounding titles, and they may be skewing their investment suggestions to favor those products that pay richer commissions.
1: So then you might be wondering if the person I'm trusting for financial advice won't agree to sign a fiduciary pledge... Exactly what is that person's responsibility? And the answer is that most commission-based financial advisors are held to a lesser standard known as suitability. So what does suitability mean, Deborah?
3: Suitability means he is only required to suggest investments that are suitable for an investor with your goals, risk tolerance, and financial means.
1: So let's get an example of how it might make a big difference. Linda, give us an example.
2: Well, suppose your goals and your risk tolerance suggest that a good investment for you would be a stock mutual fund, and there are two similar funds available. So one charges a 5% commission, okay. and the other a 2%. Okay. A fiduciary would be honor bound to suggest the fund with the lower costs, because that's obviously in your best interest. Well, the suitability standard, on the other hand, allows the advisor to suggest the fund that pays him the higher commission because either fund is suitable.
1: So really, what do you do if you find yourself in the uncomfortable position of having a trusted longtime financial advisor you've been dealing with who declines or refuses to sign a fiduciary pledge? Personally, I'd only work with such an advisor until I found a different one whose firm didn't mind explicitly guaranteeing that they will put the customer's interest ahead of their own and sign a fiduciary pledge. You know, consumers have to begin to demand that all investment professionals who dispense advice be held to this fiduciary standard of conduct. And those who are unwilling or unable should, understandably, be called out.
2: What that, an interesting article. Isn't that very something? Very straightforward.
1: We're going to hear more and more about this. The matter of the fiduciary standard... Uh, It has been glossed over for years, but at last it's coming to the forefront. And I think the public needs to know the difference between suitability standard and fiduciary standard. And their person that they deal with should be willing to sign such a pledge.
2: You know, it's very interesting. Over the years, I know that there have been uh, some prospective clients and clients that, um, you know, when they came to us, Everything wasn't disclosed. Maybe they bought an annuity or some other vehicle. And it is important that everything be disclosed. Wouldn't you agree, Doug?
1: Absolutely. It's the the investor's right. You have a right, and it shouldn't even be thought of, you have a right to know everything because it's your money.
2: Another interesting topic has to do with nest eggs,
3: Social Security, and Roth conversions. Say someone has a tax-deferred account, a non-Roth. Okay. With a contribution value meaning that's what they contributed of about 200,000 and a current value of 600,000. What if the entire 600,000 was placed in a federal and state tax-free municipal bond for one year and then withdrawn? Would there be taxes on the $400,000 gain even though it is withdrawn from a tax-free investment? You would not,
1: you would not uh, imagine how many people ask me the same question. Can I go ahead and put my investments in my IRA in something tax-free, such as a municipal bond, uh-huh. and then when I withdraw it out, not have to pay tax? Sorry, it is isn't possible to escape taxation on withdrawals from an IRA by temporarily investing the money in tax-free munis. It doesn't matter what's going on inside the IRA. Whatever comes out of the IRA, Deborah, is going to be taxable. End of story.
3: Yes.
2: Yes. So an IRA is like a tax deferred vehicle, but eventually, when money flows out as income, what's going to happen?
1: You're going to pay tax.
2: Listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis and Deborah Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF. And if you have finally made a decision that you need some financial planning advice, call us at Lewis Financial Management during the week at 919 We'll be happy to schedule an appointment for you. And let's stop procrastinating. Let's plan for your future. Call us again at Lewis Financial Management,
3: 919-872-7000. Now, how about calculating IRA and 401k distribution separately? She has two IRAs and three 401k accounts from their former employers. Do I need to take minimum distributions from all the accounts?
1: You need to calculate the required minimum distribution for each 401k separately and then withdraw the RMD from each account. With the IRAs... You have to tell, you can just total up all of the balances as of December 31 and then p- figure out what is the full required minimum on that and take out that from any one of the IRAs. But really, to reduce future workload, it would be wise to consolidate all of the 401ks and the IRAs into one single IRA, and then you can conduct one calculation, take out an RMD from one single account. There are a lot of folks out there with questions about. IRAs and 401ks. Well, it's you know it's a lot of those uh, yeah 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 people you're talking about Linda. I mean this is this is the this is the generation that's running into the issues of we're coming into that period when the IRS says they want their piece of the action. <laughs> yes indeed. Margaret, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
5: I don't know whether you will be can answer this question or not, but my brother recently passed away and he didn't leave a will. And he told several people that he wanted my son
2: to have his house. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I don't have a problem with this except I have two other children. And what procedure can I go through to give him the
1: house? Can I
2: give it to him before I sell it or now?
1: Well, you inherited the house. Right. Well, and has the estate been probated? Not yet. Well, technically, I don't think that you can... Now, how many heirs just one you're the only one right mm-hmm. I well, Everything
5: he has is mine and I'm the administrator of, of
1: his estate right uh, this is a, a, a question for an estate attorney I'll take a shot at it and I'll qualify by saying I'm not uh, I'm not an attorney mm-hmm. I'm a financial planner and I work with a number of estate attorneys but and if you by the way if you call my office I'll give you the name of a qualified estate attorney but uh, I, I believe that you're that you is the administrator of the estate have a fiduciary responsibility to treat the estate properly uh, under all guidelines until you've completed the administration and the probate process is finished. Mm -hmm. I know that there are family members who, when they are uh, executors or administrators, they do things because they know that nobody's going to object to it. The objection would come from a disgruntled heir. Well, good.
2: And if you would like any further information, you can call us at the office at 872-7000. That's USA-7000. I'll be happy to send you some information.
3: Thank you so much. I well, really appreciate it.
1: appreciate it. Well, you're certainly welcome, mm-hmm. Margaret. Thank you for All calling. Right.
3: Another situation that um, comes up is about creating a special needs trust for a spouse. And uh, this particular person said that her husband had Alzheimer's disease and she ha- and she had heart disease. And she asked, if I die first, he won't be able to manage the money. I have his financial power of attorney. Should I set up a trust?
1: This is a very, uh, um, unfortunately, not as uncommon as you would think uh, situation. And we hear them in our office quite a bit. Special needs trusts are the issue. These trusts take effect when you die and will provide for a spouse who has an illness that impairs his decision-making capabilities. You put in enough money to pay for anticipated care costs for his life expectancy. You can use the rest of the money to pay for your own expenses and to leave to your children or other heirs. A special needs trust protects the spouse's ability for certain government benefits, such as Medicaid, and then assets in the trust are not counted when eligibility for nursing home payments is considered, then the money in the trust can pay for other services, such as a home health aid, private nursing home room, wheelchair, and so on. The answer there is yes, a special needs trust.
2: These are very important issues uh, for many of our senior couples that, you know, as we age, uh, our health starts to go down. And in some cases, I know that we've had some of our clients recently that have had questions about, we're really thinking about downsizing, we'd like to get a a house that's maybe a ranch and forget about a second floor because, you know, as you get older, your knees, arthritis, heart trouble, et cetera. And so it is important, whether, and if you're listening tonight on the air, um, Maybe you're the the child of aging parents and you have questions and maybe you're wondering, should you have that conversation with mom and dad? And if you have had any thoughts, write down the kinds of questions that you, you know, sometimes you just need to have a little
3: script because sometimes, uh, you know. What kind of things you want to get answered when you go in to meet with a financial planner?
2: And what kinds of questions do you have about your situation?
3: Oh, yes.
2: And um, if you're the child, sometimes you're ashamed to ask mom and dad because they haven't volunteered the information, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, Doug, uh, Doug, when you were before your dad passed away?
1: It took a while. It, it took, took a, a while. while. It took a while before dad would totally open up, even though it was my profession. But he was so happy once he did open up because. Basically, there's the comfort. Yeah, there's the comfort that it's under control. And then even he he commissioned me to go ahead and make sure I took care of mom after he <laughs> passed away, and and with mom, there's the same thing. So yeah, this type of uh, of of second generation type of planning is crucial because things do occur and people get weaker and all these needs surface.
3: If you don't have a certified financial planner to work with, if you haven't met with a certified financial planner, call me, Deborah Lewis at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000. It might be the most important call that you make this year, 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, uh, let's take Nancy's call.
1: Hi, Nancy. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? Hi.
5: Thank you for taking my call. All right. Um, I won't bore you with all the court details, but my husband and I kind of got started late um, in our financial planning, uh, just by just some some um, some things that happened. But anyway, um, what I want to ask you is, we have two homes. We have one a vacation com- home, and then just our primary residence. And I wonder. How smart is that to let real estate be part of your financial planning for the long term? Like well, we're thinking that, you know, if we had to later in life, we could sell one of the homes and we would have that money and maybe it would appreciate through the years.
1: Boo. Bad Does
4: move.
5: That, that doesn't make sense.
1: Bad move. Okay. Um, let's, let's get a little closer, though, into some numbers. For some people, it's fine, but my knee-jerk reaction is boo, bad move. Okay. Uh, let's take a look at some numbers. How, how old are you? I'm 40. Forty years old. How old is your husband? He's 44. Husband's 44 and wife is 40. Uh, any children at home?
5: Yes. How would have Two teenagers, 13 and 16.
1: All right, two teenagers. Income of the husband? Uh, about 45. 45. Income of the wife? About 35. 35. 70, 80,000 combined income. Investment portfolio, what does it look like on the non-retirement investments?
5: It's pretty low. We have about 5,000 in stocks. bonds and we only have a 500 in savings
1: okay so basically okay so basically no investment portfolio what about on the retirement side
5: um i have a retirement at work and i think it's maybe like maybe 46 something like Mm -hmm. that
1: and husband's retirement plan he
5: has nothing
1: no retirement Mm -hmm. plan okay um let's go over to the residence how much is the residence worth
5: um, each one is worth about one hundred and twenty. One hundred and twenty thousand.
1: One of them we just bought. Okay. So. And I. Uh, what's the equity in the vacation home?
5: It's twenty thousand.
1: All right, twenty thousand equity. So you had twenty thousand dollars to invest uh, somewhere, and you put it in the vacation home. Right. Okay. Well, uh, you're right. Um, when you began by telling me you. You know it's not a real pretty picture. Uh-huh. Uh, it's really an accident waiting to happen, and it scares me looking at a situation like this. Uh, bottom line is you've got an eighty thousand dollars income. you certainly can't afford to maintain two mortgages and you shouldn't maintain two mortgages, and there's no reason to. Uh, real estate uh, certainly should not be part of your investment portfolio by any means. Uh, and basically you have uh, uh, you should be focusing on accumulation as rapidly as possible under the means of what we call a pay-yourself-first plan. What are your living expenses, Nancy?
5: Uh, about what we make.
1: You're spending 80000 a year?
5: Yeah, because we have two homes, and the problem is... No, forget,
1: okay. Now, what's the mortgage in the second home?
5: Um, it's about 1000 a month.
1: 1000 a month. So what you're telling me is that if you didn't have that vacation home, you could invest 1000 a month plus have 20000 as a starter kit. Right. Well, that's what you should do.
5: But the problem is we have a feeling that if we sold the home, we would lose our shirt. Tough. That's why I'm thinking nope. that we should
1: hang on to it. Wrong. Okay. Wrong move. Wrong move. You see, you have a $120,000 uh, thing that you've got there, but you've got an $80,000... No, you've got a $100,000 debt. Right. Well, if all it means is when you say lose your shirt, you might lose your 20000 Right. But yeah. you're not going to lose... But I don't like you sitting there with virtually nothing in savings, your husband having a zero retirement plan, you having barely nothing in your retirement plan, two teenagers at home, and uh you are saying that I could be investing at a thousand a month into mutual funds, but uh I'd rather have an i o u of a hundred thousand dollars.
5: Yeah, well, we wouldn't rather have it. We just have a feeling that it might be hard to get rid
3: of.
1: Well, I'd get rid of it anyway.
3: So, take out a pen and paper. Write down our number. It's nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. Hold on to that pen and paper, and maybe you'll get some ideas of things you should talk about. Okay.
1: I'd get I'd get out of it, and I just the same thing as if you bought it, bought yourself a, a stock, and it was down twenty thousand, and you lost. Well, you lost, and go on. All right. So but just you, cut but, our losses. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I definitely would try and get yourself into. You've got to be accumulating. Right. You see, you have what you must reach is a point where you have an accumulated portfolio of investments equal the income from which is equal to your lifestyle. So if you're spending, uh, let me see. I wonder what your expenses are without the taxes and without the the, um, the one mortgage. Let's say that maybe you're spending about sixty thousand a year. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that means you need roughly, uh, say, 700000 in an investment portfolio. Okay. Because that could produce the 60000 a year income, which would give you the security that you're after. Okay. And the only way you're going to get it is, and the good thing is, you're only 40 years old. Mm-hmm. You do have 20 years compounding in front of you. Of course, the, the risky thing is also that somebody could lose their job. Right. And so, you know, I, I, my advice would be, you know, down and dirty, get, put it up for sale, get rid of it immediately. Yeah. And uh, if you come out having lost your $20,000, uh, okay, you lost your 20000 At least you can invest 1000 a month for the next 20 years. Right. Uh, and that would be a large, large number, by the way.
5: Well, you know, just to kind of, I guess, paint a better picture, our strategy was we thought, okay, we'll buy this house. It'll be paid for in fifteen years because we have a fifteen-year mortgage, and this will be our. What's this for? We'll 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 retire there, but you know what? It's going to be too much house for us, and too much
1: yard, and it's like we. Besides, won't... what good does it do to retire and have a house paid for and have no food in the refrigerator right. or in the kitchen? I know you can't eat that house. Yeah, financial security isn't the home. Financial security is the uh, the the income stream that supports the lifestyle. So many people have that confusion. They think if they're going to have that big house with brick and mortar paid for. Right. But that's not financial security. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. That's You're kind sure of what we've welcome. been
5: thinking, and you've confirmed that for us.
1: Good for you, Nancy. Thank you. Okay, and good if
5: luck I there. Nancy,
2: if I can send you any uh, information that we have, I'll be happy to do so. If you'll just call me at the office. Okay, what's that number? And that number in Raleigh is 872-7000. Thank it's you. USA 7000. Thank you very much. All right. And take care. And I'd like care. to hear
1: the day you get the house sold, you call me on the air and let me know you did it. All right. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thanks, Good Nancy. luck.
3: bye
2: That was a great call. Doug, what is the uh, definition of financial planning?
1: Well, this has been a very contentious issue, Linda, on defining for the public, first, Defining legally for state legislatures because there are bills before a number of legislatures constantly about how to protect the public from abuse and fraud and so forth and so on. It always boils down to two issues. Number one, the holding out provision. Who has the right to hold himself out as a financial planner? And number two, what is the definition of a financial planner and financial planning? So the IAFP, that's the International Association for Financial Planning, did finally decide on a definition. And it goes like this. Financial planning is the process of providing advice and assistance to a client for the purpose of achieving the client's financial goals.
2: I think that's a wonderful definition.
1: It focuses on advice, advice and assistance.
2: If you give advice, aren't you supposed to be licensed to give advice?
1: Not licensed. You must register as a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission Anyone who receives any fees for advice must register. And if he does not give you a copy of what's called the ADV form, that's the advisory form, which discloses his whole history, his past, his fee schedule, education, education everything. If he does not give you one of those, then he is in violation of the law. Furthermore, if he is receiving fees and has not filed, he's in violation of the law. But in any case, that's the definition they agreed on. Financial planning is the process of providing advice and assistance to a client for the purpose of achieving the client's financial goals. And there was some explanation that went along with it, Linda. The explanation had to do with the process. What is the financial planning process? And the process, they agreed, includes six basic steps. Step one was data gathering. And number two goal setting setting goals number three identification of financial problems number four preparation of written alternatives and recommendations that's a written plan number five implementation of the agreed-upon recommendations and implementation schedule an action plan right and number six revision and review of the plan that's the process
3: if you have a question and would like to ask it either after hours or have me call you back after the show, feel free to call the office 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000.
2: You know, um when some people call in at the office and they want to come in and have an appointment with you, we've always suggested to them to sit down with their spouse or sit down with a legal pad and just write down what are some of the concerns. What are some of the questions that you have about your own situation and discuss with your spouse? What are our goals? What are our objectives and what are our needs now at this time?
1: Right. That's the goal part. And the data gathering, you know, when anyone comes in our office, you always ask them to send the five keys, right? right? right. What are those five keys?
2: Well, the five keys would include a person's federal and state tax returns. Right. That's the first thing. Secondly, either a financial statement or a list of their assets and their liabilities, and that's all inclusive. That would include any income from rental, et cetera, et cetera. And then thirdly, projected income, and also what their withholdings or their uh, quarterly estimates would be for their taxes. That's number four. And then the last thing, number five, would be a list of their living expenses.
1: That's the most important. Estimated yes. living expenses. Right. Right. They also went ahead and said that comprehensive financial planning will include the basic areas of financial planning along with any other concerns or areas of concern to the client. Now, the basic areas are a financial statement analysis, investment planning, income tax planning, risk management, retirement planning, and estate planning. And other areas of concern might be cash management or educational funding, planning for college education charitable planning, business planning, pre-mortem planning. You know, we've got a couple of clients who who are terminally ill. Planning for death, planning after death, divorce planning. Each of these are other areas. And the financial planning process can be applied, they decided, to meet the client's needs on any of the following. It could be the full range of client's goals on a comprehensive basis. It could be a subset of the client's goals on a more limited basis. Or it could be a single client goal on a specialized basis. So that that was the conclusion of the final definition of the process and the definition of planning.
2: You know, Doug, when a person thinks about financial planning, it doesn't matter if they're only making 24000 or they're making 250000 or a million.
1: We've had them
0: all. Then. The
2: principles are still the same. And Some I have principles. spoken to hundreds of people and... You know, each one of them has their own little scenario, but each one's need, you know, needs to be addressed. And there are some very basic financial planning principles that are used in each situation.
1: You're right, Linda. My office number is 872-7000. If I can help you any more, give us a call during the week.
2: Thank you for joining us on Money Matters.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Saturday and Sunday. Monday at five PM for Money Matters with the Lewises on six eighty WPTF.